Welcome to the war from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, send it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Well, originally I had an entirely different program planned to air today, but part of the nature of this program is making adjustments. And I listened to an episode of the March of Time, and uh, I'd seen it dated for February 1st of 1942. It was dated January 1st. And so it was a classic year-in-review program, and what could be more perfect for a show like ours? Uh, so the title of this episode is, Every Continent on Earth Lay on the Scales of Destiny. Uh, maybe a bit long, but I think it's quite good. So here now, from uh, January the 1st, 1942, is the March of Time. Which was transcribed earlier for presentation at this time. The editors of Time, the weekly news magazine, recreate from the pages of Time a year of world history. The March of Time. Nineteen forty one was the year in which every continent on earth lay on the scales of destiny. Which way was the scale tipped by the time the earth had rolled its twelve months course around the sun? As the year began, each people thought it knew. The leaders thought they knew. The leaders spoke. At year's beginning, Adolf Hitler spoke for the conquering Germans. German people, the year Because, 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 because
choir troops marched into Axis-held Libya, singing a four-year-old American movie tune. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Until the more powerful Germans struck at Greece, the British Army of the Western Desert had to turn and face new foes. The freedom-loving world took heart at its gallantry in Libya. The year that began 365 days ago was a year of conflict and great decision, a year of triumph and defeat, a year of courage and a year of treachery. It was the year of British disaster on Crete and the curious battle for Syria, the year the British twice rolled the Axis back across Libya, the year Hitler was kept from getting his oil from Iran and Iraq. On the sea, it was the year of the Hood and the Bismarck. The year the Italian Navy got blasted out of its own ocean. And the year two men met on a battleship and wrote the Atlantic Charter. Thus, all year long, crisis was to follow crisis. And the news poured in 20,000 words an hour from every news front of the world. Day by day, the news was to become more personally important to Americans than ever before. More confusing, harder than ever to understand. And that is why more and more Americans are turning to Time, the weekly news magazine, to help them make the news make sense. For Time boils the news down for you and fits it together. Time queries and verifies the news. Time eliminates unconfirmed news and repetitious news. And thus Time untangles the events of the week and gives them to you as one clear, quick story of history in the making. In this way, the new issue of Time gives you in a single evening more real information than you could get from days of unorganized reading and listening. Gives you news from the home front, from the war front, from every important news front. From the march of time. The fateful year of 1941 was not to be seen by some who had done much to shape its happening. One was Neville Chamberlain, who hoped to avoid war by appeasement, and who quietly died in England amid the ruins of peace in our time. One was the one-time imperial all-highest emperor of Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm II, to whom death, as it must to all men, came last spring at tulip time in Holland. One was an American, a clear-eyed observer, a brilliant author, who understood better than any of his ill-starred generation the cynically romantic mood of America following World War I. He was F. Scott Fitzgerald, the writer who gave his period its name, but gladly. He had peopled his pages with flappers and philosophers and sad young men. He had caught the popular tunes of the 20s to which so many of his contemporaries danced the hours away, sought to escape the crowding presence of reality. He and his generation sickened through the long depression and died together. A few days before the year began, his body lay in the back room of a Hollywood undertaker's chapel. Anyone come in to be with him or to say a prayer? There have been a few callers, Mr. Scully, but uh, no one has leaned. Poor Scott. I think nobody would stay with him his last six hours in this world. May God let his kind soul rest in peace. I'll say a few prayers before we go. God help the poor souls in purgatory. May the souls of the faithful. Scott Fitzgerald, at 44, 
had died at the end of an American era which none portrayed more sensitively than he. Significantly, he had said of his British character, Jay Gatsby, he believed in the green light, the orgiastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning, so we beat on, bolts against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. In the spring of this second year of World War, the two mightiest armies on Earth came to grips. Adolf Hitler hurls the German mechanized might against Soviet Russia's 3,000-mile border. The attack comes without warning. It's timed, as usual, to catch Russia's Red Army off guard. A group of German soldiers cross the frontier and approach an isolated Soviet blockhouse. I don't think they will have much trouble taking that bunker. Part of our patrol is already behind it. The Bolsheviks know they are surrounded. They will give up. Yeah, Captain. Just like 1917. <laughs> Who ever saw a Russian that could fight? Yeah, that's right. Now, after me, across this field. I can't understand it. The Reds are fighting at us. Take cover, man. Take cover. Get up your machine gun. I guess we'll have to blast them out of there. More shooting from that blockhouse. Now we've closed in. The men, here is where you see your first dead Russian. I can't believe it. Anyway, we'll have to bring up St. Lawrence. The Russians keep under burning fire. Yes, Captain. Report back to Captain Airhop. Tell him he must move a battery of artillery up here. He will have to fire at point blank range. Smash that black horse to pieces. In 1941, it appears these Reds can fight. In Czechoslovakia's munition plants came slowdowns, fires, explosions. In France, German officers were assassinated. While in Yugoslavia, the gallant Chetnik guerrilla revolt was admitted by Germany to be large-scale warfare. From the Arctic to the Aegean swept this mighty wave of non-submission. In Athens, the populace starved because of the ruthless Axis food plundering. Yet the spirit of the heroic Greeks is indomitable. Typical is that of an Athenian lad settling a small basket of pitiful stale little cakes, which none of his ravenous fellow citizens can afford to buy. He approaches a waiting truckload of British prisoners. Bill, Bill. Hey, what now? Ain't that kid over there all seen jam tarts or sweets of some sort? I hope so. After that swill jelly feed, if I could do with a bit of sweet, I could. Cooey! You with the basket there. Come over here, there's a good boy. Here he comes. Hello there. Jolly good. 
Adolf Hitler, no bloody good. <laughs> Mussolini, no bloody good. Yeah, right, Winston Thornfield, jolly good. Yeah, yeah. I want a cannon, little monkey. Johnny, how much for cake? You wish cake? That's right. How much? This cake for you, and this cake for you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and this only cake. Bloody fine. A bit of sweet, boss. Right, but how much are they? Here, Johnny. Here's a shilling for you. No, 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 no money. For you, I give this cake. Please, for John Bull. What? For Winston Sorcerer. Why? But you got to take something, mate. How will you live? Never mind. Ah, oh. Well, we're pushing off now, I guess. Thanks again, Macy. And God bless you, man. Give me a thumbs up, pal. And don't forget, there'll always be an England. Goodbye. There will also always be great, too. Unsolved throughout the year was 1941's greatest mystery. Glasgow, May 10th. Late in the evening, a German aviator is entertained in the humble cottage of tenant farmer David McLean. For nearly an hour, the plowman, his mother and sister, chat with their guests. No, sir. I'll just slip this wee hassock under your poor sprained foot. There. Ah, there. Thank you. Yeah. Is that better? I am uh, most comfortable. When the police arrive, I shall tell them to take me to the home of your landlord, the Duke of Hamilton. My injury will be attended there. Will you take a drop of milk in your tea, sir? Oh, thank you most kindly. I never drink tea as late as this. I may have a glass of water. Put last dinner sit down with that dark look on your face. Fetch a gentleman a glass of water. Where are your manners? Oh, sorry. Judging by that magnificent suit you have on, master, and your fine watch and that, that gold identity bracelet... I'd say in your own country, you're an officer of some kind. Uh, yes. Yes, I uh, am an officer. Here is your water, sir. Thank you. You are most kind. Maybe you're a captain, eh? Or even a major? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yes. Uh, maybe even a major. Whatever your rank, sir, you're extremely fortunate. Think of your plane crashing in flames and you're not being baked to death like a haggis. Yes, I am lucky. Uh, tell me, uh, what became of my parachute? I should like to take it back to Germany with me for a souvenir. Back, back to Germany? Yes. I go back in about two days. But of course, Rudolf Hess, the number three Nazi and Hitler's best friend, did not go back to Germany. But why he flew to Scotland, what his motives were, has never been disclosed. Best comment on the whole strange fiasco was made by irascible old Sir Patrick Dullum, Lord Mayor of Glasgow. The presence of Rudolf Hess here in Glasgow means only increased danger of bombing. It's not an honor that he landed here. The whole affair was very badly managed. It was in 1941 that famed U.S. commentator Raymond Clapper, having observed a nation locked in a death struggle, came home from Britain. But the fate of Britain was not what concerned him most. Raymond Clapper was gravely concerned about what he was returning to in his own country. Once landed, he was not long in speaking his mind. I came back from Europe more impressed than ever with the strength of the United States and with a feeling we do not know how great it is. 
A massive New York skyline appears through the windows of the incoming clipper. A huge cube of Rockefeller Center down to the battery. The line seems like a great stone dam holding a reservoir of giant power backed up from the continent beyond. We don't believe any of this. We wonder whether the British will get the better of us. We think Hitler invincible. We think this is too dangerous a world for us. They want to crawl into a shell in a pitiful search for safety. Thus did Raymond Clapper challenge the responsibility, the enterprise, the courage of his fellow Americans. Many another thoughtful American felt the same misgivings. But by autumn, the United States was beginning to flex its great strength. A million and a half U.S. soldiers were camped from coast to coast. Their selection of their training in 1941 was one of the wisest acts of preparedness ever undertaken by the American people. Month by month in 1941, the Americans grow accustomed to seeing khaki and olive drab on their streets. Grow proud indeed of their splendid new citizen army. And to Broadway comes Cole Porter's new smash hit musical comedy, Let's Face It. Appropriately, this scatterbrained extravaganza is laid in and around an army training camp in Long Island. Principal characters are a rookie named Jerry, played by rising new comedian Danny Cage. His fiancée, Winnie, Mary Jane Walsh. Jerry has been given $100 by three lonely Long Island ladies to make their husbands jealous. The audience at the Imperial Theater knows this, but Jerry's fiancée does not know. Hello, Winnie, baby. Gosh, I was scared you weren't coming. Here's the license, here's the ring, and here's the pawn ticket. Now you take over. I'm tired. Well, what's new? Look at this dough. $100. Funny thing. I'm not tired anymore. Green is such a restful color. <laughs> well, why don't you hold it? It's ours. I, uh, I, I mean, it's yours. Where'd you get it? Oh, it's little business adventure. Say, what kind of a job is it that pays $100 for two days to a guy that gets $21 for 30 days? Answer me that. Uh, uh... Well, it's a sort of a propaganda angle. Huh? You know, a, a propaganda. We pose for pictures showing what a good time us guys have. Uh, like that thing in the magazine, Life Goes to a Party. They, uh, they want to use some of them for recruiting posters. <laughs> Can you imagine my face on an army poster? Boy, what an argument to join the Navy. <laughs> Tell me, never mold your life around. A soldier never lets himself get too warm. And a loony for his uniform. So no one else is to blame. If I'm playing the army game. My Jerry. Does his touch thrill me much? Does he feed the band at making me feel well mad? Yes, he's all so sweet every time we meet. I can eat right out of his hand. The hand of my rookie, my sweet cookie, my bundle full of joy. And on now and then he lets me down. I'm saving the wedding gown for Jerry, my soldier. In 
1941, in sun-bathed Hawaii, 175,000 Japanese lived and worked with characteristic Japanese industry. They regarded Hawaii's Americans with smilingly concealed envy and hatred. The Americans regarded them with kindly contempt. One day in Hawaii, at a sugar plantation... Hey, Bob, take a look out in the sugar cane there. Huh? Oh, you mean those Japs? Yeah, three to four Japs chopping away out there. And this isn't working hours. But I get it, what goes? Yeah, those Japs are always monkeying around with them. They want to do a little extra work. What's the difference? Well, Mr. Kasabi, making another visit to the barracks? Oh, yes. I have many friends here. Just a minute, I'll open the gate for you. You want to see my pass? Yeah. You always got one, haven't you? Yes. Always have one. You certainly are a fan for Schofield Barracks. It's a big attraction, anyway. Thank you. Thank you very much. Say, Mr. Mercy. Yes, Fred? There was a Jap in the business office just now with this advertising copy. Mm -hmm. Wants it in tomorrow's paper. What about it? I wish you'd look it over. Doesn't seem to make sense to me. Did he pay for it? Yes, sir. (laughs) Don't worry about it. This is the way he wants it. But I don't think anyone could make head or tail of what he's written. I don't get it. When, on December 7th, the Japanese from the air suddenly attacked the Hawaiian Islands, the United States had its greatest shock at the accuracy with which the Japanese pilots went to each objective. They blew up barracks, attacked officers' dwellings, machine gunned the highway leading to Hickam Field. They pounced on the battleships at Anchor and Pearl Harbor. And this week it becomes known why the Jap attack had been so accurate, so damaging. Arrows had been cut in the sugar cane, pointing the way to military objectives. An old Japanese spy operating a shortwave transmitter had been a familiar visitor for 20 years at the U.S. Army's Schofield Barracks. Japanese vegetable dealers had tipped off U.S. ship movements by the amount of supplies the ships ordered. And innocent-looking newspaper advertisements were, in reality, signals between Japanese agents in code. And America, which had been fully warned of treachery in other lands, regretfully realized that in 1941 and for years before, thousands of Hawaii's 150,000 Japanese were the most effective fifth column the world had ever seen. few days of 1941, Americans looked with prayers on their lips to the Philippines. Day after day from the beleaguered islands came reports of larger Japanese troop landings. At Lingayen, Antimonian, Moban, enemy transport land 200,000 troops. In tanks and armored cars, the invaders drive toward Manila. Day after day, bombers bearing the emblem of the rising sun rained death on the capital. Last, the U.S. naval base at Cavite. Only hope of the harassed forces defending Luzon lies in receiving speedy help from the mainland, above all planes. The deepest hope of the people of the mainland is that help may be gotten to the Philippines. Two days ago, in the public square of a town along the north Luzon front, a group of citizens see a squadron of planes approaching. Quick, pull out 
to run for cover. Yeah. More jet planes. See how low they're flying. Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. Take a good look at those planes. They're not Japanese bombers. They've got stars on their wings. They're American planes. Are you right? They've got here at last. that followed, this one ray of hope is tragically blacked out. Relentlessly, the Japanese forces press on toward Manila, heedless of staggering losses. Yesterday, from General Douglas MacArthur's headquarters, comes a laconic communique, admitting the Japanese dive bombers control the island road. And tonight, with Japanese troops outside Manila, the fall of that heroically defended city appears imminent. As 1941 ended, Americans grimly took their losses, assessed their gains. There was the success of the stubborn Chinese, the new British advance in Malaya, the continuing repeat of the Germans in Russia. There was also the American spirit. New York City, New Year's Day, 1942. In the pedestal of America's 152-foot gray-green Statue of Liberty on Bedloe's Island, two electricians are talking. Well... There's the automatic switch for the old lady's new lights. Three 3,000-watt mercury vapor lamps. Boy, she's really carrying a torch, ain't she? Yeah. I was hoping to turn them on this evening. Could have been seen 20 miles out to sea. Well, what do you mean, could have been? Ain't they going on? Not now. On account of possible air raids. Gee, it's kind of a shame. New lights off for the duration, huh? Yeah, that's it. So the old girl's all blacked out, huh? All blacked out? Nothing. Stick your head out this evening and take a look. There's still a light in Liberty's torch, even if it's a small one. And it's going to stay there. Till someday. Maybe not in 1942. Maybe not in 43, but someday. You and I are going to turn those new lamps on and light her up bigger and better than ever. is over. Winston Churchill's 1941 and Franklin Roosevelt's and Adolf Hitler's and Hirohito's 1941. But it was a year to be long remembered by the world's leaders and plain citizens. By none more than Americans who faced their duties and destinies as Americans have always believed they should. In the U.S. Capitol... Speaking from the place where Franklin Roosevelt had asked for a declaration of war against Japan fortnight before, Winston Churchill, unquestionably the greatest of modern orators, points up the fact that the United States and Britain are now allies in the gravest hour each country will ever face. Winston Churchill brings down the curtain for 1941 with words about the future years. I think it would be reasonable to hope that the end of 1942 will see us uh, quite definitely in a better position than we are now. And that the year 1943 will enable us to assume the initiative upon an ample scale. Some uh, people may be startled 
or momentarily depressed. When, like your president, I speak of a long, hard war, our people would rather know the truth, somber though it be. And after all, when we are doing the most blessed work in the world, not only defending our hearts and homes, but the cause of freedom in every land. The question of whether deliverance comes in 1942, 1943, or 1944 falls into its proper place in the grand proportion of human history. As the memorable events of 1941 take their place in history, Americans enter a new year determined to use the knowledge that they have gained through many a hard-fought lesson. The story of how and where this knowledge will be applied by America and America's allies, the story of all the news in the weeks ahead, that is the story time the weekly news magazine will tell in 1942. To all the people of America... To all men of goodwill everywhere who will live this story, the editors of Time and the staff of the March of Time express their hope and their belief that the chapters of this story will grow brighter as the days of the new year go by. Next Thursday, same time, same station, the editors of Time, the weekly news magazine, will again recreate for you the news of the week. Time marches on. March of Time was transcribed earlier for presentation at this more convenient listening hour. Welcome back. Well, a powerful show. And really summarize the uh, events of 1941 and the challenges being faced going into 1942 very well. And I was very glad to find that. And I hope that all of our listeners who are hearing this on New Year's Day of 2014 will have a great uh, new year. And we have so many more months of great uh, solid war programming to bring you. But that will actually do it for today. That'll do it for now. If you have a story about your experiences or that of a loved one in World War II, I'd love to hear from you. I welcome all your comments at box13 at greatdetectives.net. King Curlin provides the opening theme, Heroic, KenCurlin.com. Andrew Rines edits our sound, otrwesterns.com. I'm your host, Adam Graham. The war is offered as a service of the great detectives of old-time radio, 